What's up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I'm joined by Luke Mikic. We go over Southeast Asia's dirty little secret, the United States, the dollar, and much, much more in the global macroeconomic landscape and how it relates to Bitcoin. So be sure to tune in for another action-packed episode. And for those listening on audio, please hit that subscribe button. Get this podcast wherever you get your um, podcast. Get it directly to your feed by hitting that subscribe button. And then give it a five-star review or some boost or something along those lines to help the show grow. The support is greatly, greatly appreciated. So... As always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice. Everything you hear from Luke and myself should not be taken as financial advice. Now, let's get into the episode. Whoosh. Bing bong. I am back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. But for those listening on any podcasting 2.0 app, such as Fountain, the sats streamed are greatly, greatly appreciated. The last episode got a bunch of sats streamed to it, so it is greatly appreciated But uh, I'm going to be on the road, so I'm not recording on my usual day. So the sats could still be streaming in and whatnot. So I don't want to name some people and potentially miss out on some others. But just just to let you all know, it is greatly appreciated. If you're watching this on YouTube, go ahead and hit that like button. Help spread the show. Hit the subscribe button. Uh, Leave me a comment on what you think of the episode and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Those are greatly appreciated. I definitely read all of those. And shout out to my sponsor who makes this all possible. That's coddle.co. They got the best punch plates in the game. I actually got one sitting right here with me. So go ahead and get your Bitcoin off an exchange. Use a punch plate from coddle.co and use promo code green candle, all one word, to get 10% off of that entire purchase. And it helps me bring uh, bring in some revenue for the show and helps make everything possible. So everything uh, with Coddle.co is greatly appreciated. So shout out to them. Uh, check them out at Bitcoin Miami. They're going to be there. Uh, and I will too. So if you're listening to this on Friday, uh, as we're preparing for the day at Bitcoin Miami, come find me, come say hi, shoot me a DM, shoot me a tweet and whatnot. And uh, yeah, see you all down there. And I've got a very special guest in the waiting room here. I've got Luke Mikic. He's been on the show before, but uh, yeah, welcome back, dude. I had to have you back on after the last appearance. How you doing? I'm great. I'm thrilled to be back on the show, Brandon. Uh, really looking forward to it. Yeah, man. Uh, awesome. So for those who might have missed it, uh, the last episode, why don't you just give us like a quick synopsis of who you are and uh, yeah, like how you got, got to where you're at today? Yeah, so I'm essentially just a 26-year-old bogan talking shit online about Bitcoin and macroeconomics. Uh, I write a lot of articles, writing a book right now, and I've had a YouTube channel for a couple of years now. Uh, work full-time at CoinBeast uh, Media. We're a Bitcoin-only uh, educational company. So just trying to teach more people about money because I think it's a little bit criminal that the authoritarians don't teach us about money in school. Yeah, 100%. So our last episode, we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, the an article that you wrote about, uh, you know, the US potentially weaponizing the dollar by backing it with Bitcoin. So on that, we'll, we'll start it off there right off the bat. So, uh, you know, has that theory changed somewhat after, you know, the landscape has changed a little bit since we since we last spoke? And if it's changed, uh, you know, where do you kind of th- see this all going? 
Yeah, so the past six months is really interesting in terms of how the US is actually looking at Bitcoin and the wider, you know, crypto markets. Uh, it's been really interesting to watch. We have like this Operation Choke Point 2.0 that's been rolled out against all the crypto banks. We saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank and Silvergate. Uh, they essentially got attacked. Um, so it's kind of like the way I'm looking at things right now, it's actually looking as if the US is posturing less friendly towards Bitcoin and uh, potentially backing that dollar by Bitcoin. But this is a kind of a line in the article, the Bitcoin milkshake theory. Um, the, the line of the article goes, whether the US likes Bitcoin, bans Bitcoin, or even uh, tries to get, uh, like, you know, ban the world from using Bitcoin, Bitcoin adoption is going to help the US dollar. And most people don't understand that statement. And the theory is, um, as Bitcoin adoption grows around the world, so does the demand for a stable medium of exchange and unit of account. And that is obviously still the US dollar. It is the least dirty shirt in the laundry basket, as some people say. And we can even see today, like, uh, the market cap of Teva has grown from like five billion to sixty or seventy billion in the past two years. And Teva came out yesterday and they made an announcement saying we're buying like seventy million dollars of Bitcoin um, every month. Okay, so it's it's like there's this symbiotic relationship going on right now uh, of as the US dollar gets stronger and strengthens. Uh, this is going to actually cause a wave of global inflation around the world. As you watch these countries like Turkey, Argentina, Sri Lanka, etc., have 100% inflation, you watch those citizens look for alternatives. I believe those alternatives will be Bitcoin and the US dollar. And I believe as Bitcoin adoption grows, this is actually good for the US dollar. So I'm not sure whether the US actually... Um, actually realizes this yet because uh, 12 months ago when I wrote the article, I was a lot more bullish on the US. They were, we had, uh, you know, Gary Gensler saying uh, Satoshi Nakamoto's innovation is real. We had head of the security, uh, we had head of the treasury, Janet Yellen saying Satoshi Nakamoto uh, has done great things or whatever she said. I forgot her exact quote. Um, but now 12 months into the future, we're watching a little bit more of an attack on Bitcoin um, and more broadly the crypto industry. So my probabilities of the US backing the dollar by Bitcoin um, like in the next one to two years have decreased um, just because of the past 12 months of data, it looks as if the US is actually uh, you know, looking a little bit less favorably towards Bitcoin. And it's really interesting during those past 12 months, we have all of these countries in Southeast Asia looking as if they're secretly adopting Bitcoin and welcoming Bitcoin into their borders. But I'm sure we can talk about that a little bit later. I'll pause there for a minute. Yeah, for sure. We'll definitely dive into that too. But, uh, you know, first I want to kind of dive into the status of the U.S. dollar and the global, I guess, macro kind of landscape here. Um, you and Coinbeast put out, uh, you know, a uh, little, I guess, snippet, like I, I think earlier today that I saw that is 145 countries have reported inflation over 5%. So that, that's, I want to make sure I say the reported because, you know, whether it's their CPI numbers or whatever, we all know that those numbers can be fabricated based on their, you know, basket of goods and other, everything like that. But, you know, with 145 uh, countries with inflation over 5%, you know, kind of how are you viewing the overall, uh, I guess, macro environment? Do you think the Fed is doing the right thing by, you know, kind of rapidly raising interest rates at the rate that they are? Um, and yeah, I guess I'll leave it there. Yeah, so like the really zoomed out TLDR look at the global economy right now is 
The world has too much debt. Um, I believe over the next 10 years, we're going to watch that debt be deleveraged. Every single time governments accumulate too much debt and too much leverage in the system, they have to deleverage their balance sheets. The deleveraging either comes in a deflationary collapse or an inflationary printing fest where the governments will just print money, let inflation run really hot, and they'll pay back their enormous debt with the devalued dollars. So I believe the next 10 years, we're going to see sustainably higher rates of inflation all around the world. Um, I think the recent uh, correction in the US CPI inflation basket is just a correction. It is not a return back to quote unquote normal. I think it is a correction before it goes much, much higher again. Uh, CPI inflation in the US is what is it, four and a half or 5% right now today. And all the deflationists are coming out and cheering, saying, We've beaten inflation. It's over. We're going back to that 2% inflation. I think that's 100% wrong uh, because of a number of things. Um, if you actually measure the way our very own governments used to measure inflation in the 1980s, uh, shadow stat shows that inflation today is actually like 13%, not the 4.5% that our good friends in government are telling us it is. Um, And they obviously also just changed the way they measure inflation only this year. They said, instead of looking at two years of data, let's only look at the past one year of data where we've managed to kind of, you know, attack inflation a little bit and it's not so bad. Um, So, uh, yeah, I I believe zooming out, we're going to see more inflation. It's going to be sustainably higher. Um, like Lynn Alden continues uh, to beat the drum on, it's going to look a lot like the 1940s where you saw three large spikes of inflation where inflation ran up to 12%, crashed back down to zero, ran up to 19% in like 1946, crashed back down to a couple of percent, and then it had another enormous rally over 10%. I think we've seen the first rally um, in this decade, the 2020s, uh, which I believe is going to mimic the 1940s, um, and we're going to see another couple of big rallies of inflation. Yeah. So why do you think that we're going to see a couple of another big rallies of inflation? Uh, do you think, I mean, you know, it seems like they're kind of, uh, you know, pointing some signs potentially of, you know, maybe, you know, dooming, doom and gloom when war, World War III. Um, you know, I saw a tweet today that said there's a Russian aircraft detected over Alaska in an air defense zone. So, you know, that could be a potential excuse. I don't know, you know, if there's some other, you know, I guess, uh, virus that comes out and needs to shut down the entire economy or something else like that. You know, so maybe something that we would never have dreamed of four years ago uh, could, could happen. So, uh, you know, on that, do you think that, you know, uh, with the fiat monetary policy, essentially, you know, you know, the 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 way that the economy grows is just in a, in a source of panic or, um, you know, some sort of crisis. Right. Because uh, in war, uh, the, all the defense companies make a bunch of money. Right. Um, in a epidemic, uh, you know, like we just had with COVID, all the pharmaceutical companies seem to, to make a bunch of money. So, you know, it seems like these crises kind of incentivize, you know, capital capitalism exploiting these crises and making a boatload of money. Um, so do you think like, you know, theoretically, there's going to be, you know, some other crisis that will, I, I guess, uh, you know, it's, t- I'm putting you on the spot here with the crystal ball, but uh, <laughs> you know, something else is potentially going to happen that's going to cause, you know, maybe some more money printing to get the excuse to, you know, I guess, uh, help, uh, help us not default uh, come whenever that that day could potentially come. 
I'll go on the record right here um, as there will be 100% another crisis before the year 2030 is over. It is only maths, as Greg Foss says, it is only maths that they have to print money out of thin air to deleverage their balance sheet. Hirschman Capital did that report in 2020. They showed, hey, look, over the past 220 years of data, 52 countries have reached debt to GDP levels above 130%. And 51 of those countries defaulted within 15 years of reaching that 130% debt Rubicon. Well, guess what? The United States hit that Rubicon in 2020. Uh, Their debt to GDP ratio spiked up to 139%. And there's another 14 or 15 countries around the world who have also breached that 130% debt Rubicon. So I believe that they need an excuse to print the money out of thin air um, to deleverage their balance sheets. It's really interesting you mentioned another potential, uh, what was it, pandemic, because we have our good friends at the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, actually talking about the fact that uh, there is like a 40% chance that we will see a cyber pandemic before the year 2030. Sounds a little bit crazy. Sounds as if Brandon and myself had the tinfoil hat on, but you can go and watch a, a video and an article that is on the World Economic Forum's very own website where they say there's like a 40% chance that we're going to have a global blackout of the uh, electricity grid and the internet um, before the year 2030. So, Look, we're going to see it's the same thing with the 1940s. Debt was too high in the 1940s. The US had 120% debt to GDP. They needed to deleverage their balance sheets. Uh, Most people in the 1930s didn't believe it would be possible that we would fight another world war in the 1940s. But the world war, the second world war, gave governments all around the world the perfect excuse to deleverage their balance sheets, print money out of thin air. And the US was able to run like 10 years of yield curve control in the 1940s and early 50s to shrink. Um, And they also let that inflation spike three times, like we talked about. So inflation was above interest rates. And the US shrunk its uh, balance uh, debt from 120% to like 70%. Um, So I believe, yes, um, you know, the 2020s will be laden with crises. Um, and it's really interesting because in the 2020s, we're not only living through a government debt deleveraging, but we're also living through many of uh, many of these other long-term cycles that are unwinding today in the 2020s. Uh, we're on the precipice of a 250-year revolutionary cycle. We're also watching the end of the 90-year fourth turning cycle. Interesting tidbit, um, the author, Neil Howe, is actually releasing another book this year um, on the fourth turning. And that was obviously written in the 1990s that predicted all of the carnage that we're seeing around the world today in the 2020s. Um, And obviously, we're also watching uh, the the unwinding of the 50 to 60-year tech cycle. And that is obviously going to be the adoption um, of Bitcoin and other transformative technologies like artificial intelligence that is going to completely reorient uh, the the workplace as we transition into the digital age. So there's a lot happening in the 2020s. Be prepared for anything. Yeah, I know. It sounds like buckle up. But, you know, if there is like, I guess, uh, you know, a global blackout where it's like, you know, the Internet shuts down globally and there's kind of, a, you know, I guess this cyber pandemic, so to speak. Obviously, there's going to be a lot bigger problems than just Bitcoin, but it seems like that that could be potentially an attack on Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, with, with that being the case, you know, I, I guess what's what's the argument there for Bitcoin if there's a potential, I guess, cyber attack like like they're, you know, the World Economic Forum has kind of lined out. Bullish for Bitcoin. Every yeah. single time we've seen a government try to ban Bitcoin, uh, it's been bullish. Like have a look at Nigeria. 
They're banning Bitcoin right now and they're trying to force their citizens to use CBDCs. Uh, they're not even letting citizens withdraw more than $100 out of their bank account every month, trying to convert their money and savings into CBDC token, which is essentially a slavery coin. Um, and what's going on in Nigeria right now? Bitcoin adoption rumored to be somewhere around 30 to 40% based upon whatever survey you look at. And CBDC adoption, 0.35% in Nigeria. So that I think Nigeria serves a very important example of what happens when a government tries to ban Bitcoin. People are naturally just going to seek out freedom. Uh, yes, in the short term for maybe if hypothetically there is a cyber pandemic and the grids go down for a couple of days or something crazy like that happens, uh, it might hurt Bitcoin uh, in, the, in the near term. Maybe there will probably be... Oh, not maybe, there will be a propaganda um, attack on Bitcoin uh, once uh, the light switch is uh, proverbially turned back on, so to say. Uh, but, you know, after the hysteria kind of dies down, I think it'll be a massive uh, bullish uh, reasoning for Bitcoin. Like we can see distrust in media all around the world today is at an all-time high. How many people are actually going to believe the narrative um, of, you know, what caused the potential blackout if we do see a hypothetical scenario like that? I think there's a growing number of people who saw just how extremely wrong the narrative was in the mainstream in 2020, 2021 and 2022. And it has kind of, you know, it's sowed the seeds of an early uh, revolution, which I do believe we are living through today in the 2020s. Yeah. So everybody, I mean, yeah, like you said, I mean, it, it, it would be bullish for Bitcoin, but I think like at a lesser or at a greater extent, you know, hospitals, all those kind of things, like a mm -hmm. bunch of other, you know, technologies that we need power for every single day, you know, keep some people alive even uh, would be more important than, than Bitcoin. But I feel like, you know, the narrative would be kind of around, uh, you know, I guess Bitcoin kind of caused it, so to speak. But you already kind of mentioned Nigeria and, uh, you know, what can potentially happen if governments try to ban Bitcoin. Well, that will bring us back to the earlier point about, you know, China and Southeast Asia, because, you know, obviously we saw China try to ban Bitcoin mining. And it seems like, you know, the hash rate of Bitcoin uh, is still back uh, and pretty high in China. So uh, why don't we go into that? You wrote a great thread about uh, Bhutan. And so uh, I'll give you the floor here and just leave it open ended. Why don't you... Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there and as maybe some other countries in Southeast Asia. Yeah, thanks for the kind word on the thread. Uh, it's one of my more regular shit postings there on Twitter. Uh, but yeah, I find it really interesting that like three months after China banned Bitcoin in 2021, all of a sudden 20 or so percent of the hash rate in China actually popped back online within the borders of China. We've had no explanation for who is mining that Bitcoin in China and why that has happened. And that has been going on for the past year or so. And what has happened in the past year or so? We've watched a global de-dollarization. In early 2022, the US came out and said, look, um, you know, we're going to freeze Russia's treasury reserves. That woke up the world to the fact that they need to get off the US dollar. So I find it really interesting that Bitcoin mining hash rate is coming back online in the borders of China around the same time that that Russia and Ukraine invasion and treasury reserves freezing happened. Okay, so that's just one interesting coincidence, okay? But typically where there's smoke, there's fire. And if you have a look at many of the other countries bordering China, okay, all of their neighbors are posturing as if they're friendly on Bitcoin. So there's a country called Laos, L-A-O-S, I don't know how to pronounce it, but they banned Bitcoin in 2018. They came out in 2021 and they said, guess what? 
we're turning on the Bitcoin mining operations. They said, we are going to run a Bitcoin mining pilot program. I believe they actually also authorized like six different companies uh, in the country to mine Bitcoin for the government. And the government said uh, they expected that to actually increase their government revenue by like 20% in that year. So they're a very small country and small economy. Um, So obviously there's Laos posturing friendly to Bitcoin and doing a backflip. Another country that actually borders China is Bhutan, okay? The kingdom of Bhutan is their official name. Their country of like 700 odd thousand people. So again, a very small country, uh, but they actually got exposed in the BlockFi and Celsius bankruptcy filings uh, because they were a customer of BlockFi and Celsius. They were buying hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin on both those platforms and getting US dollar loans um, through their $3 billion sovereign wealth fund that is called Druk, D-R-U-K, something like that. Um, So that got exposed around a month ago. And then the Kingdom of Bhutan came out and said, yeah, you know, we've been buying Bitcoin since 2019, but we've also been mining Bitcoin since 2019 when Bitcoin was under $5,000. And they came out just this week and they said, yes, we've been buying Bitcoin. Yes, we've been mining Bitcoin, but we're doubling down on that decision. We're going to invest another $500 million into Bitcoin mining this year. And they partnered up with one of the biggest Bitcoin mining uh, companies in the world, Bitdia. Um, So again, so we have Laos, we have Bhutan, we have the story of the Chinese miners, really interesting. And then things get even more interesting because there's actually a member of government from Indonesia who is going to be speaking at the Bitcoin conference in exactly two days. And I think, I'm not 100% sure on this, I believe he's talking with Samson Mao. So he's presenting with Samson Mao. Indonesia is a country of 270 million people. Uh, They have a lot of excess uh, energy um, and hydroelectricity, as I understand it. I think right now they're telling us that the talk is going to actually be about uh, Bitcoin mining. Um, But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it is uh, an announcement of Bitcoin being legal tender or something big like that in Indonesia. Um, Again, I I get it. You know, we don't need governments to make Bitcoin uh, legal. Who cares? Um, I understand all those arguments and talking points. They're true. Um, But it is very bullish um, if something like that emerges out of Indonesia. And we haven't even, we could talk about Vietnam and the Philippines, but I've already, I've already rambled a lot. I just think it's really interesting that all these countries in Southeast Asia um, are posturing as if they're going to be Bitcoin friendly at the same time that the US and especially Europe is attacking Bitcoin. Yeah, hundred percent. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was a great breakdown of a lot of those countries in Southeast Asia, but something that I think is interesting that I, that I want to ask you about is like, you know, Bhutan, like, why were they able to, I guess, continually stack Bitcoin and, you know, invest in mining, but we aren't really hearing about it until, you know, 2023-ish time. So four years later, uh, it seems kind of peculiar because, you know, I feel like in the U.S., I mean, maybe they could be stacking Bitcoin or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like in these bigger countries that kind of get involved in Bitcoin, I mean, even El Salvador, like some of these, even the, some of the smaller guys, they've had to kind of like, I guess, make it public or announce it. Uh, is there some sort of strategy that Bhutan has been using in order to, uh, I guess, one, just like avoid making a lot of head, headlines with it and kind of stacking under the radar? And uh, two, like, I, I don't know, is, is it possible for other countries to potentially be I guess, stacking under the radar like they're doing? 100%. Other countries are 100% stacking Bitcoin. The only reason we found out about Bhutan 
was because uh, the bankruptcy filings of Celsius and BlockFi were released to the public. I think a lot of these other countries are probably doing things a lot smarter. So Bhutan was mining Bitcoin within their borders and stacking, uh, you know, the excess coins uh, that they were mining. Uh, whenever they had profit, they're stacking that. Um, so I think a lot of country, other countries are probably doing that. Um, I'm not sure that other countries are using their sovereign wealth fund to, uh, you know, invest in public companies like BlockFi and Celsius. Um, so I think very high probability uh, other countries are mining Bitcoin right now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. But you broke down Southeast Asia, right? I mean, we've, we've kind of had, you know, we have Bitcoin Africa now. We have Bitcoin African Conference and Strike is rolling out remittance payments all throughout, you know, the entire continent there. And then we have Latin America that has been seemingly, you know, kind of having the grassroots movement, obviously El Salvador. And it seems like some other countries are popping up like a similar kind of Bitcoin beach like area. So where are you most bullish on? I mean, there, there's three different kind of areas of the world. And it seems like a, a lot of uh, like grassroots movement and kind of, you know, movements are going on. So where do you kind of see, I guess, you know, I, I, I'm putting you on the spot here. Tough, tough question. But where do you see the most growth? And uh, uh, I guess, where are you most bullish on? I'm most bullish on Latin America. Um, and I back that up with my geographical movements. I haven't actually left the American continent for the past uh, 18 months now. Um, like yes, Bitcoin adoption in Asia is, uh, looking to be high, uh, but you just don't have the, uh, geographic, um, you know, freedom that I believe you do get in Latin America. Um, you know, if something goes sour here in Colombia, where I am right now, I can just hop a border and jump on a, you know, a 20 hour, uh, car trip. And all of a sudden I'm in El Salvador and I'm surrounded by Bitcoiners in Asia. Uh, you know, you don't have that same freedom. And I learned, uh, just how dangerous it can be in an Island, uh, in 2020 and 2021, where the international borders were closed to people of my medical status. And I couldn't leave the Orwellian open air prison that I was living in. So geographically, I like Latin America. And even in terms of Bitcoin adoption, I like Latin America. Latin America isn't really on board with what the US is doing. Um, most of the countries in Latin America today are actually doing more trade with China I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Uh, I really, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't want China to succeed with their whole Belt and Road Initiative. Obviously, they're uh, an authoritarian state. Um, but, you know, if the US is going to fight Bitcoin and China is going to help accelerate Bitcoin adoption around the world, well, you know, I don't, I'm just sitting here with uh, popcorn. So, look, I'm really bullish uh, on Latin America. I think we've already seen right now in Argentina, they have like 130 or 140% uh, real inflation in that country. And the uh, there's a presidential election going on in October 2023. And there is a, a presidential candidate um, in uh, Argentina who's actually taught economics in Peru, Brazil, and Argentina, who is a full-blown Bitcoiner. Um, he was actually even on national news a few years ago, and he was uh, they blindfolded him in this little uh, national news news stunt, and they put the central bank on like a pinata. They gave him a bat, and he was like whacking the central bank with a bat. So he's come out, and he's obviously been talking about how we need to abolish central banks for years. He wants monetary freedom uh, within Argentina. He wants to actually uh, deregulate the US dollar and let it trade freely within Argentina and take down the central bank. And he, uh, this dude, I can't pronounce his name. It's like Millet or something like that. But uh, he's obviously spoken favorably about Bitcoin, hates central banks. And he right now is actually leading the polls for their uh, election going down in October later this year. So 
obviously that's enormously bullish Argentina, uh, Brazil, like, Again, I believe there's no taxable events on any Bitcoin or quote unquote crypto transactions in Brazil. And like you can buy Bitcoin from one of the largest banks in Brazil. It's really interesting. Um, I'm probably less bullish on Brazil now that, you know, this whole socialist takeover just happened a couple of months ago. Um, but, you know, like Brazil has 200 million people. Argentina is a country with 45 million people. Mexico is a country with more than 100 million people. And um, I've traveled to a few of those countries and it is so much easier to orange pill people on Bitcoin because they've suffered from really high uh, bouts of inflation in their lifetime. Uh, Latin America had uh, the 1985 Latin American debt crisis where most of the country's uh, currencies either hyperinflated or had significantly high rates of inflation um, in the 1985 US dollar bull run. Um, so they, they know what inflation is like. Um, even the maid uh, who uh, cleans my house and cooks my food here in Colombia, uh, she actually, we tried to teach her about Bitcoin. I showed her a Bitcoin lightning transaction. And she asked to get like 10% of her wages paid in Bitcoin. And she's just, she's stacking uh, every paycheck. So it, it, even speaking very poor Spanish, it's very easy to have these Bitcoin conversations with people in El Salvador, Peru, uh, here in Colombia, or even Mexico. Yeah, I was going to ask you how your Spanish is, but I guess you, you answered that one. It, it, it's, it's probably better than mine, unfortunately. But, um, you know, on that note, I, I mean, it, it definitely is. I'm definitely bullish on Latin America. And I think, that you know, seeing all the signs and everything like that you've already kind of laid out obviously makes me extremely bullish. But the one source of skepticism I have, and I don't really know this. So, uh, you know, feel free to, to prove me wrong or whatnot. But. Um, you know, how is, I guess, this uh, presidential candidate lining up against others? Because I feel like, you know, uh, a candidate running behind Bitcoin is is definitely a huge risk because, you know, obviously we're, we're floating around 30K right now. Um, if Bitcoin price crashes to 20 or if it crashes, you know, even a little bit, you know, we, we, you'll see a lot of other politicians, uh, you know, cracking down on him. I mean, we saw that with Pierre Polyvev and mm. I'm pronouncing that totally butchering his name, but I apologize. But up in Canada, he was, you know, known as the Bitcoin candidate. And now he hasn't really come out and, and spoken anything about uh, Bitcoin in quite some time. And, you know, a big part of that was because, you know, he was running on Bitcoin when it was like 60K. And then now when it dropped to 20 and 30 and whatnot, everybody kind of just pointed the finger at him and said he didn't know what he was talking about when it came to the monetary policy or, or money or anything like that. So, um, yeah, I'm curious to hear how the Argentinian uh, presidential candidate is lining up compared to everybody else. Yeah, it's certainly a big risk. Uh, it's a huge risk to be running uh, on Bitcoin. I was actually going to bring up the example of Pierre because it's a really good one. Trudeau bashes him and Bitcoin uh, constantly. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a huge risk. Uh, but I think timing matters. Uh, like El Salvador potentially timed the Bitcoin legal tender implementation pretty poorly. Uh, I think they made it when Bitcoin was around forty or $50,000. But um, I think now that you've seen all of these shifts uh, happening in the depths of a bear market, I think it's uh, very interesting. I'd, I'd be surprised if Bitcoin went back to uh, $20,000 personally. Um, 
I, I, I think we're a lot closer to uh, QE galore and then a lot of people believe like uh, most people are just looking at the us monetary policy and they're not looking at monetary policy uh, around the rest of the world uh, like inflation in the in the eurozone and the uk is still above 10% um, and like both governments are really struggling to raise interest rates and stop shrinking their balance sheets over there um, so I, I think we're a lot closer to monetary printing than most people believe um, and that's just going to you know accelerate the inflation all around the world that we're seeing i think it's probably going to be bullish for bitcoin in the short term so i think if candidates are running on a bitcoin back uh you know uh system or agenda i think i think they're probably going to be they're going to do okay um over the next 18 to 24 months obviously obviously nobody knows where the price of bitcoin is going to go in the short term um i have no idea um but you know i i think probability probabilities uh considered i think it's probably going to be higher in 18 months so that'd be really interesting to see what someone like uh, robert kennedy as well running for president in the united states it's going to be really interesting to see how uh he gets attacked uh in his presidential campaign uh back in bitcoin and talking about how uh you know scary cbdc's are going to be and openly exposing uh the pharmaceutical shenanigans that happened in 2020 and 2021 uh it's gonna be really interesting to watch these ideas of uh bitcoin and freedom money uh in the mainstream press over the next couple of years yeah for sure and you know you know to be honest i i'm the one thing that does worry me is that you know i think a lot of people maybe in in america especially are, are going to be kind of ignorant to to what is going on you know like oh the government would never you know do this they would never uh you know give us some drug or jab or whatever that you know could be detrimental to my health health down the line they would implement a cbdc but they would never shut down my bank account not in america that stuff couldn't happen so you know on that note i kind of want to take a dive into cbdc's because obviously you know a shit ton of countries are starting to develop it you know, even the United States has kind of come out and said that they're, you know, looking into it and starting to develop a potential CBDC. So I feel like this is, you know, the next potential big uh, attack vector on Bitcoin. Uh, so where do you kind of see it going with uh, CBDCs, not only just in the United States, but globally? Yeah, I filmed a video on this this week, actually. Uh, so there's 108 countries all around the world uh, that are currently actively pursuing implementing a CBDC. And those 108 countries represent 95% of global GDP. So pretty much any country around the world that is somewhat technically advanced they're looking how to implement a CBDC and they either have a pilot program, a full-scale CBDC, or, you know, they're actively looking into the development of a CBDC, 108 countries. So it's pretty big. Uh, you know, most governments are actively pursuing uh, CBDCs. I think they're coming. I think governments are going to try. I really do think they're going to try. Uh, but I always have this debate with one of my buddies who wrote the Monero Standard. Uh, that is a Monero book. He's a Bitcoiner and a Monero person. Uh, but and you know, he obviously sees all the Orwellian stuff that we see. Um, but I just think he's too bullish on the central planner's execution. I don't think they're going to be able to execute on their visions of the future. So, like we saw in the Caribbean islands last year, uh, they had this—they uh, had this central bank digital currency called Dcash. So many of the islands, like Antigua, Dominica, they were all kind of trying to use this Dcash central bank digital currency. And the thing went offline for like three months in, I think it was early 2022, because they just had all these technical glitches and technical failures and it just didn't work. Um, so like, I, I, I think uh, the, the tyrants are going to try. 
Like this is the separation of money and state. We've never done this in 5,000 years of monetary history. And the state is going to push back big time, okay? Uh, 500 years ago, um, when that revolutionary cycle was unwinding, we obviously saw uh, the separation of church and state, okay? When the printing press came out and it decentralized information all around the world and the people realized that the state and the church was actually lying to them, they said, I've had enough of this. I'm not listening to the church and the state. And you obviously saw like the counter-reformation war, which is like 20 to 30 to 40 years of just bloodshed. Um, So yes, I think the state is going to fight back um, in the 2020s. um, But like, I think we have uh, so many freedom enabling technologies emerging today uh, that is actually, uh, you know, it's, it's asymmetrically empowering the sovereign individual. Uh, again, one of my favorite books written in the 1990s that predicted all of the chaos we're seeing today, and it predicted how a decentralized um, and digital money would actually uh, shrink the size of governments and the nation state and create this enormous wave away from centralization to decentralization. And I think CBDCs is like going to be one of the tools uh, that our, the uh, tyrants and the authoritarians in governments are going to try to use to slow down this decentralized uh, freedom enabling revolution. But I think they're just going to inevitably fail. Like the past thousands of years of history show us that uh, central planning and communists uh, typically never work and always fails. It always ends in famine. Uh, it always ends in death and it always ends in the state imploding on itself. Yeah, one can only hope, right? I mean, I, I, I agree, though, that the execution with everything just seems like it's not going to be, uh, you know, I guess, uh, perfect, so to speak. I mean, the, the way I always view, uh, talk to, to my friends about this, you know, especially when it comes to, like taxation and other things like that is, you know, the way I view business is that it's kind of good to have that little bit of pressure on a business or on uh, just persons, people in general, right? Because I mean, if you have your back against the wall, that's where you can kind of see what you're made of. And I, that's what I think about businesses, right? If you have the potential that you're going to fail because, you know, one, investors are going to pull out money if you're not operating properly or other things like that, you know, you're going to try to find the best, most efficient way to use those things. Well, you know, in my eyes, the way we uh, the way I view the U.S. debt and the debt ceiling and all this kind of stuff is that, you know, the U.S. never has had to have their back against the wall or had, you know, to have to worry about failing or, you know, imploding on itself, so to speak, because, you know, when it comes down to they have the global reserve currency, they could just print more money. They can tax a little bit more here or there, change some policies, uh, just move the kick the can down the road, so to speak. So, you know, that that like a little glimpse of, uh, you know, potential of failing is, is what makes, you know, the U.S. a great country for entrepreneurs and other things like that, because, you know, you, you have the ability to build great companies and other things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you there that uh, the execution of the government has not really shown like a great track record in it. You know, I think it's it's essentially by design, right? I mean, mm. the, the government's, uh, you know, you're allowed to take a bunch of days off in, in Congress and all these other things. Uh, you know, you have a bunch of different holidays where like, you know, if you're an entrepreneur or, you know, you're running a business, you don't really have the full like nine to five kind of operation that, uh, you know, the, the government or other things can, can have because uh, until you get fully established. And then once you get fully established too, you know, I'm sure the CEO of, of a lot of these big major companies will tell you their job is not necessarily nine to five, uh, you know, like a lot of these people in government. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you there. I think it's going to be very difficult 
for the government to implement that thing. And, you know, partially because of the reasons you lined out and I, I just lined out. But um, on the on the note of CBDCs, I, I do think that's a big threat to Bitcoin. But I, I think that there's an even bigger threat to the U.S. dollar. And I and I kind of want to dive into it with you. It's it's the BRICS coin. Right. I mean, they're starting to develop their own CBDC. Now, will people actually or countries actually use that you know, coin or crypto or whatever you want to call it to trade. I don't really know, but it seems like, you know, as we've lined out China, Russia, and a lot of these other countries are kind of, you know, closing that gap between the U.S. and everybody else. Um, and, and on that note, you know, they're, they're China's training a lot with Latin, Latin America and like all these other countries are kind of, you know, moving a little bit towards China and away from the U.S. because the U.S.'s greatest export is the U.S. dollar. So, you know, are you kind of worried about the strength of the BRICS nations or the BRICS plus nations and whatnot um, to, uh, I guess, potentially overtake the U.S. dollar prior to Bitcoin adoption? Mm, yeah, 100 percent. And like that's that's the Bitcoin milkshake thesis uh, The like the U.S. has to back the dollar by Bitcoin if they want to retain the reserve currency uh, for as long as they possibly can. OK, like it's in the, in the late 1960s. The U.S. certainly would not have wanted to back the dollar by oil and make a military agreement with Saudi Arabia uh, to protect them and force them to price oil in dollars um, over the past 50 years. But when the U.S. has had its back against the wall and people have begun to lose faith in the U.S. dollar, uh, the U.S. has been forced to uh, play an economic wild card and pull a rabbit out of the hat. In the 1970s, they backed the dollar by oil. Uh, when they implicitly defaulted on their debt in 1971. And I believe today the only option they have left is to back the dollar by Bitcoin. Uh, again, in the article, I continue to say they don't want to do it. They might, even if they try to ban it, Bitcoin adoption is going to be good for the US dollar. Um, it's like, uh, what was the other point I was going to touch on there? I forgot it. Um, oh, China. So all these BRICS countries, to me, it looks as if they have enormous gold hoards. So many of these countries outside of the US are currently stacking gold at record amounts, okay? Uh, like central banks in the past three years have bought more gold than they bought between 1980 and 2008. In three years, they bought more gold than they did for 30. So they're stacking gold hand over fist. You look at Russia, they're the most backed fiat currency around the world. China is actually rumored to have 20,000 metric tons of gold, not the official 2,000 tons of gold that they claim to have. If you simply look at the amount of gold they've exported and imported since 2008, you get to a number around 20,000 tons, um, which is obviously triple the amount of gold that the US holds. And that's if the US holds all the 7,000 tons of gold uh, in Fort Knox that they claim to hold. There's lots of rumors around, uh, you know, suggesting that the US doesn't even hold any of that gold. So I believe that the BRICS countries are probably going to have to create some sort of commodity backed or more likely gold backed BRICS coin. Okay. So then that is probably more trustworthy than a paper-backed US dollar, okay? Because like everybody around the world is probably going to trust the US more than, you know, China or Russia, you know, these totalitarian states. Uh, but if these totalitarian states back their currency by gold, all of a sudden countries that are on the fence might start looking at that and saying, hey, you know, this is really interesting. Maybe I would prefer to hold a gold-backed uh, currency, and then I think the U.S. is, you know, their backs are forced against, uh, forced into the corner like they were in the 1970s. 
And I think the only way that you have a more trustworthy currency is to back it by Bitcoin or hold some of your reserves uh, in Bitcoin because that is more trustworthy, obviously, than a gold-backed BRICS currency. Like we've all seen uh, the reports over the past couple of years. China was making loans on billions of dollars of fake gold. That was tungsten. Um, Like the Perth Mint in Australia recently got busted uh, for trying to sell billions of dollars of gold to China. That was all fake. It was like tungsten gold and they tried to cover it up and everything this was 2022 news so gold just fails okay gold fails in the digital age you have some analysts who i respect very highly you know saying you know gold might be used and you know sure it might be used in the interim but I think it's just a stepping stone to a Bitcoin standard. You if gold, you cannot physically like settle with gold and like put hundreds of billions of dollars of gold on an aircraft or a big boat and ship it over to another country for trade. Uh, gold is old, Bitcoin is bold, and Bitcoin is for the digital age. I like that, man. Gold is old, Bitcoin is bold. But I mean, yeah, I mean, as you kind of lined out, the gold transactions, uh, you know, uh, require some sort of trust, whether it's through a third party or something like that. And, you know, humans by nature can be, you know, manipulated or, um, you know, a bribe, so to speak. I mean, so there's so many different things that, you know, I don't know, me personally, I just don't, wouldn't really trust anybody to, to verify the, the, these that this gold bar is actually a gold bar, especially based off what we've seen. You can but. never trust the government. Uh, our, uh, well, your good friend, uh, Mike Green, had a really interesting interview on Macro Voices yesterday, and I uh, couldn't help myself, but I had to retweet it. And Mike Green was essentially saying, look, if the Bitcoin maximalists had have actually asked the government's permission about what we would like in a monetary system... Bitcoin would have had more success today. That was that was a paraphrasing, but that's essentially what he said. And I kind of you know, quote tweeted and said, like, you know, the past 5,000 years of monetary history show that you cannot ask the government nicely to not debase your currency. They're always going to debase the currency. They're always going to print it out of thin air. They're always going to clip the corners of a gold coin. We've seen it thousands of times in monetary history. Um, you know, Bitcoin is the solution to this, and it is having success all around the world if you're not looking at Bitcoin with a narrow US-centric uh, you know, framework. There's a lot of traders out there who think Bitcoin is just a tech stock that goes up and down in price, and it's traded by Wall Street. And they ignore, you know, 30 to 40 percent Bitcoin adoption rates in, uh, you know, Argentina, Nigeria, uh, the Philippines and uh, Indonesia, countries who need it the most. So, yeah, I just had to get that little tidbit uh, in there about trusting governments because. Oh, I mean, I I saw that that clip as well. And I was going to ask you about that, but you already nailed it. So the the other thing I want to ask you, though, is that another argument uh, against Bitcoin that I had Doonberg on my uh, macro show um, is that Tether owns quite a bit of it and that, um, you know, you, you kind of lined it out earlier in the show. Tether has also just recently become the biggest buyer of U.S. treasuries. Um, and, you know, Doomberg's kind of argument against Bitcoin is that Tether, you know, you, you can't really trade Bitcoin for U.S. dollars. You trade it for Tether and then, you know, Tether's backed one to one to the U.S. dollar. So that's how you're able to you know, theoretically get dollars for your Bitcoin. Um, So, you know, with Tether kind of scooping up a large amount of Bitcoin and scooping up a large amount of of U.S. treasuries, you know, what I guess what is your overall view on Tether and kind of like what they're doing, uh, the way that they're approaching, I guess, this overall almost like monetary policy of a, a, I guess, a a coin, I guess. I, I don't even know how to like really word it, but yeah, go for it. 
Yeah, I mean, like, I respect Doomberg and, like, I respect people like Mike Green as well. Like, I've learned a lot from them over the years, so I don't want to seem like I'm completely bashing on them or dunking on them. I do respect their opinion. Um, but, like, I, again, I think Doomberg just, you know, hasn't quite done the work on Bitcoin. He's been a, you know, Tether truther for years, claiming that Tether is unbacked. And now that it comes out that Tether is actually backed by, you know, US government debt and Bitcoin. Uh, now there's, you know, people still can't admit they were wrong um, about Tether. I, I think Tether, so controversial opinion. I think Tether is more trustworthy than a lot of people think. Yes, it's still shady. Yes, I wouldn't trust Tether. Yes, not your keys, not your coins. But there's been so much FUD um, circulated um, about Tether. I think it's a little bit overblown. Um, again, I wouldn't trust them uh, with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but like, you know, I mean, like they hold, like you said, they're the largest buyer of treasuries um, uh, in early 2023. So this once again confirms the thesis. U.S. stable coins are good for, uh, you know, the U.S. dollar and its hegemony as the global reserve currency around the world. If these stable coins are backed by U.S. government debt, guess what that means for Uncle Sam? Uncle Sam has found a sugar daddy to help unwind the petrodollar system. As countries like Russia, China, and the Southeast Asian countries all de-dollarize their economies, all of a sudden the U.S. needs to find a buyer for that $32 trillion of debt. And I think it's going to actually come from these uh, U.S. stablecoin markets um, that are at right now, like nearly 100% backed by US treasuries. So I know Circle USDC is 100% backed by treasuries. Uh, Tether right now, um, I think they hold 40 to $50 billion US treasuries roughly. Don't quote me on those numbers. I think they have a market cap of 60 to 70 billion. So they're not 100% backed, but they have over the past 12 to 18 months been selling more of their risky commercial paper and actually selling that for US treasuries. So like... Yeah, I, I don't know where I was going with that long-winded uh, rant there about Tether, uh, but like US stablecoins um, backed by US government debt is actually good for the US government. So the US government hypothetically has an incentive to increase the adoption of uh, stablecoins around the world. Hypothetically, let's grab a tinfoil hat and pop it on. How would you increase adoption of stablecoins around the world? There you go. Um, you would aggressively raise interest rates the fastest interest rate hiking schedule you've done in history. And what would you, you would do is you would artificially strengthen the US dollar. Well, not artificially strengthen, but you would strengthen the US dollar, which would decimate the purchasing power of currencies all around the world, creating a wave of inflation, like we're seeing in Sri Lanka, Argentina, Turkey, all around the world. And as you see that wave of inflation, demand for a more stable currency increases. So demand for Bitcoin or demand for US stable coins increases. And I believe both of those things are good for the US government and the US dollar. And that is the Bitcoin milkshake theory. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, you've reverted back to the Bitcoin milkshake theory, which, you know, I think still kind of holds true. So we'll we'll see how everything plays out. Hopefully the U.S. gets, uh, I, I guess, a little bit smarter with their policy makings and other things like that, too, because, you know, we, we can dive down that rabbit hole. That's probably a full another hour long conversation. But before I let you go, I think I'm going to start doing this every episode. So you're you're the guinea pig. Uh, the show is called State of Bitcoin. So in your eyes, what is the current state of Bitcoin? Bullish. 
If it's a one-word answer, it's bullish. I think everything we're seeing around the world uh, is incredibly bullish for Bitcoin. You have governments turning into into tyrannical tyrants. That's bullish for Bitcoin. You have governments showing they can't sustainably raise interest rates and normalize their balance sheets. That's bullish for Bitcoin. You have governments all around the world cracking down on free speech. Look at Tucker Carlson. That is bullish for Bitcoin. Bitcoin is freedom. Bitcoin is hope. We are separating money from state, the biggest revolution in human history. And Bitcoin is the enabler of all of that. So I think the state of Bitcoin today is very bullish. Um, I think like, and I do think it's going to happen a lot quicker than most people think. I have this thesis uh, where I kind of say, look, the first 12 years of Bitcoin adoption was like the gradually phase of the Bitcoin adoption. And I believe the 2020 was the monetary inflection point. And we are now living through the suddenly phase. Um, So I've kind of mapped Bitcoin's adoption rate um, onto the adoption rate of many of the technologies that have been adopted in the digital age. If you look at technologies like the smartphone or broadband internet, Typically, on average, takes around 10 years to go from zero to 10% adoption. And then an inflection point is reached. And that technology goes from like 10% adoption to 90% adoption in the same amount of time. So the same 10 years. I think 2020 was the inflection point on Bitcoin's adoption chart. And I think there's data backing up this pretty extreme accelerationist view. If you look at the amount of coins on exchanges, for the first time in Bitcoin's life, coins actually started decreasing from exchanges in March of 2020 when the money printers got turned on and when the government locked everybody in their prison cells for six months in a year. Um, So Since then, we've seen 35% of all the available Bitcoin for sale evaporate from exchanges. We've watched coins on exchanges shrink from 3.1 million coins to 2.1 million coins today. If that trend continues, there'll be no Bitcoin left on exchanges by 2028. Strap in. I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe hyper-Bitcoinization is going to happen a lot quicker than most people think. That's the state of Bitcoin. There we go. I love it, man. That was a great answer. So, uh, Luke, you've been very generous with your time. So thanks so much for hopping on and uh, coming coming back on the show. Um, but for those who, who might not know uh, about you or your work, why don't you tell people where they can find you and what you got going on? Yeah, thanks for having me, dude. Uh, like, I love your show and I'm actually gutted I won't be in Miami to uh, catch up and meet in person. But um, yeah, so everybody, uh, you know, you should check out uh, the YouTube channel and everything Brands are doing. It's great work. Um, so me, uh, I talk shit online. I have a few different YouTube channels. I'm sure we can link them uh, in the description down below. I work full-time at CoinBeast Media. So we're a Bitcoin-only educational company. Um, and I manage their YouTube channel and their podcast as well as the Twitter. Um, so if you want to tell me I'm crazy, shoot me a message over there on Twitter. Um, tell me I'm crazy. Tell me why. Um, and uh, with all that said, Brandon, thank you so much for having me. It was an absolute blast. I hope somebody got a little piece of value uh, from my deranged ranting for the past 52 minutes um and thank you so much for having me dude of course you're always welcome back on and yeah i mean dude i i, th- I think uh i will uh well one i'll link everything in the in the show notes so everybody can uh check out your work but yeah continue the great stuff continue the threads the videos all that stuff i definitely recommend luke and all his content that he's posting online he calls it shit posting i always <laughs> find it super valuable so luke thanks so much man thank you so much for having me brother